Welcome to the Writer's Book Club podcast, where each month we take a deep dive with an author into the writing craft and process behind one of their books. I'm your host, Michelle Barraclough, and this month I was lucky enough to chat with Nikki Gemmel about her latest novel, The Ripping Tree. Now, I'm a long-term fan of Nikki's, beginning when I first read The Bride Stripped Bear almost 20 years ago. I can't believe it's been that long. She's produced adult and children's novels and a memoir and other works of non-fiction and still turns out a weekly column for the Australian magazine that manages to be fresh and engaging in her signature style, which is like a warm conversation with a friend. All of that as well as raising four children. In our chat, Nikki spoke about her work process in detail and how she works her writing around family life. We also talked about how she developed the characters in The Ripping Tree, how she structured the novel for pacing and how important pacing is to her, why she doesn't read fiction when she's writing and what inspired her to write what she calls a love letter to Australia, a hymn to the land. God, even the way she speaks is just so beautiful. Now remember, there can be spoilers in this podcast, although we don't reveal the huge awful secret at the centre of the novel. But as always, if you prefer not to know anything about a book before you've read it, go and buy yourself a copy of The Ripping Tree in all the usual places and come back and have a listen after you've read it. Now, about Nikki. She is the best-selling author of 14 novels and four works of non-fiction. She's originally a Wollongong girl, lately of Sydney, with a long stretch in London in between. Her distinctive writing has gained her critical acclaim in France, where she's been described as a female Jack Kerouac, and the French literary magazine Lyra has included her in a list of what it called the 50 most important writers in the world, those it believes will have a significant influence on the literature of the 21st century. Her best-known work is the 2003 novel, The Bride Stripped Bear, and in fact she's written another two novels that form something of a trilogy, her sexy books as she calls them in the podcast. She also writes novels for children, the Kensington Reptilarium series and the Coco Banjo series. After, her memoir about her mother was one of the most moving stories I've read in a long time. Basically, Nikki can turn her hand to anything. Four of her books, Shiver, Cleave, The Bride Stripped Bear and The Book of Rapture, made the long list of favourite Australian novels as chosen by readers of the Australian Book Review. Nikki also pens a weekly column for the Australian newspaper, which is the first thing I read every Saturday morning with my coffee. You can see why I'm such a fan. I hope you enjoy this interview with Nikki Gemmel. Nikki Gemmel, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. It is such a joy to be here, Michelle, with you. Amazing. I know. And we just saw each other again on the weekend down at Storyfest. And oh my gosh, what a whirlwind that was. Incredible. It was the most gorgeous festival. It was great for the locals, but people came from everywhere for that one. It was such a beautiful, warm feeling to it. I just loved it. Was that your first festival with the Ripping Tree? No, I've done a few, a few others. And in these COVID crazy times, your heart is always in your mouth. Um, so far, I've managed to be there at every one, but there always seems to be drama like just beforehand or just afterwards. So I, for you, thank goodness you guys slipped your festival under the wire before lockdown. But 
what an amazing job you guys did because it must be very, very stressful in these COVID times to bring something together. You never know really when you're going to have to pivot. I know we're all saying that word now. It's kind of up there with the word journey, you know, but I feel like we are all having to pivot. Now, this novel, oh my gosh, I finished it a few days ago and I absolutely loved it. Congratulations. It's such a beautiful novel. Thank you so much. <laughs> Can you tell us the premise of The Ripping Tree for people who haven't read it yet or don't know anything about it? <laughs> well, it's a psychological thriller. It's an historical novel. These are all things that I have never tried before. So basically, uh, it's got a lot of influences in it. It's a bit of the turn of the screw, Henry James's The Turn of the Screw, uh, a little bit Rebecca, a little bit um, The Secret River, and also the film Get Out, which I love. So basically the premise of the book is a stranger in a strange land. This young woman, she's shipwrecked off the coast of colonial Australia. She is rescued by an Indigenous man who takes her to this illustrious house on the coast isolated house she thinks she's made it she thinks she can reinvent herself um this is a wonderful opportunity for her but over a short sharp seven days she gradually realizes that what she thought was saving her is not saving her at all and basically she has to get out of this situation before these people save her um in inverted commas so it's basically becomes a thriller of like, can she escape this place in time? Yeah, there's definitely a touch of the Mandalay about Willow Bray, isn't there? <laughs> yes, I wanted to put an iconic house at the centre of the book, like a Mandalay or, um, you know, a Northanger Abbey or yes. a Wuthering Heights, even, you know, a Privet Drive. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> You know, just you, you say that name and you recognise that that is from a book. So for me, the name Willow Bray is the creepy house that this young woman ends up at. Where did this story come from, Nikki? It, it covers so much colonial history as well as having this uh, gothic thriller element. How, how did this story come to you? Basically, I was feeling enormously homesick about a decade ago. I was living in London. I'd been there for um, almost 15 years. And I, I tripped into my agent's office in London. He um, is a lovely, eminently teasable man. And I just said to him, I want to go home. I'm so homesick. I just want the Australian light in my bones again. And he went, I will look, just piss off, Gemmel. Go home and write the big Australian book. And that's basically what I did. I came home after, you know, back to Australia after 15 years of living away from it with outsider eyes. So, you know, suddenly I realised what British people were talking about when they said, you know, oh, Australia's so ugly or, or you know, it's so spiky or everything kind of bites us or stings us or whatever they'd go on about. I could suddenly see where they were coming from. But for me also, I, I just, you know, I'm always drawn to the incredible beauty of our land. And for me, the ripping tree is a hymn to the land, is my love letter to Australia. So I wanted to write that book about, you know, the beautiful Australian landscape that's seen through outsider eyes. And I wanted to, in a way, pick at the scab 
of colonialism or maybe it's a gaping wound but I feel like there are so many stories there about our years of the white settler situation that are undertold so in terms of all these undertold stories I wanted to bring some of them into the light and it's perhaps a harsh light but you know I've I've never shied away from being fearless, I guess, with my writing. And this was another way that I wanted to be fearless in a way. Yeah, definitely I would call it a gaping wound because some of those scenes where you reveal the things that happened to the Indigenous people in the area were quite shocking on the page. But in terms of the description of the the land, oh my gosh, I love the way your Thomasina, Tom, your Tommy Tom, even though she's an outsider, she really embraces it. And I could sense that love letter in her words and the way she embraced that landscape. So Tom... Your beautiful main character. Can you tell us about Tom and how her character developed for you? I love Tommy Tom too. And um, I must admit, my heart was breaking for her as I was writing her journey in this land. Basically, when I was writing my Tommy Tom, I was thinking of those wonderful Australian colonial heroines I'd grown up with. You know, Sibylla from My Brilliant Career. Juju, Judy from Seven Little Australians. They're the young women who don't conform. They have a voice. They have a loud voice. And they get into terrible trouble because of that. They're clumsy and they're stubborn and they're sparky. And they've got this wonderful um, light to them, um, which is so lovable. But you want to say to them, just, just, you know, just be careful. Be so careful. Because the world doesn't la- like loud, outspoken women like that. And basically my Tom, she's 16 years old. She hasn't learnt decorum or boundaries. She was raised by her father in isolation in England and he raised her to be tough. He raised her for a man's world. So she arrives in this world of Willow Bray in, um, you know, on the coast of Australia, um, this house of great decorum. But very quickly she realises there's something deeply unsettling about it and she asks questions. And for me as a writer, my passion has always been fairness. I've always been interested in fairness in, in many different aspects of life. And for me, my Tommy Tom carries through that characteristic. If she sees something that feels deeply unfair, she's going to ask questions about it. There's a mystery at the heart of the ripping tree that she attempts to unravel and that gets her into a lot of trouble because she asks questions that she's not meant to, she's too loud, she asks uncomfortable questions without realising the danger that it's putting herself into. So all that contributes to this sense of Tom eventually has to extricate herself from this situation because it's extremely dangerous to her. I did a lot of research on um, county women's asylums in, in England back in those days and the reasons why, you know, women were incarcerated behind those tall stone walls and sometimes never heard from again. And, you know, the serious reasons, like, you know, hysteria was an umbrella that embraced so many different dodgy things. It could have been postnatal depression or 
or, you know, the husband found their wife too boring or the husband wanted to leave their wife or whatever it was. So my Tom has that danger always hanging over her that she might be incarcerated. She might be put away if she asks too many questions. So there's this incredible dilemma going on in the novel of how she can voice what she feels is terribly unfair but how she can keep herself safe at the same time. Yes, she confronts these men, these powerful men, and she says all the things that a modern enlightened person would say with the humanity and the kindness and the fearlessness that we we have now as women. She has that quality in the early 1800s. It's incredible. Yes, but I I think it's, um, you know, you read My Brilliant Career and it has that, freshness too you know that Mm. was written over a hundred years ago but we recognize Sibylla's you know passion and her fury and her frustration and her wants all those things they feel very modern too so in a way you know these are timeless things that young thinking women want and that's what I wanted for my Thomasina Another influence for her was Viola in Twelfth Night, you know, the trope of a stranger in a strange land. So I loved that idea of, you know, a young woman washed up on a strange shore of an island that she's never been to and sees it as a chance to reinvent herself because no one knows who she is. So for me, you know, Shakespeare was writing about Viola, what, 500 years ago? Um, Mm, And mm. once again, her truth, feels like my Tommy Tom's truth, feels like truths that we are talking about now in in the Me Too era. So it feels modern, but it's also timeless. And, you know, you go back through literature and you find these women and their raging wants again and again and again. Mm, It's wonderful. Um, Diving into the process behind your character development, do characters evolve on the page as you write or do you really think about them in advance? Oh, look, it's a long and complicated process and this one took 10 years. Um, Basically, it began (laughs) with I went up to my local newsagent. I I bought a big piece of white cardboard and a marker pen and I basically tried to plot out the whole novel from beginning to end on that one sheet of cardboard and and so I spent the next 10 years fleshing out that story and the characters evolved over the years they didn't appear fully formed to me um you know over the years I kept on thinking I can't grasp them enough that they're not vivid enough And if I'm not grasping them, then the reader's not going to be able to grasp them either. So over 10 years, basically, I would be observing, you know, a man across from me at a dinner party or a woman in in a shop, the way she would carry herself or the way, um, you know, a young man would kind of hold his fingers nervously to show that he wasn't comfortable in company little tiny scraps, little nuggets that revealed character. I would observe these over 10 years. It's like I had my character of the matriarch in my head, but I couldn't quite see her. But over 10 years, I found her. I found her physicality. In fact, the woman, Mrs. Craw, her 
physicality is based on, um, I, I, I hate to say this, but I've got four kids, so it could be one of it. It's the teacher <laughs> of one of my children, and I don't know her very well, and she's absolutely gorgeous, unlike the Mrs. Craw character, the matriarch in my novel. But the way she is, her physicality, the way she carries herself, the way she moves around a room, the few short times that I've witnessed that, it was like, ah, that's my character. That's Mrs. Craw. So I had the physicality from a school teacher and then I just layered on all the complexity myself of who this woman was. But I felt like with every single one of my characters, and there are not many characters in The Ripping Tree, it's, it's a very enclosed world, but with every single one of them, I needed very specific details of their physicality so that we could clearly picture those people in our heads as we read the book. Is that an approach you generally take towards character development in your writing? I must admit with The Ripping Tree, I did it more so than what I ever have before. Mm. And that's probably my writing developing. You know, I've been writing novels now for 25 years. I'm still learning. I'm still learning the ropes. And, you know, you'd think by now I'd have it down pat of how to do it and how to hone it and that I would just be able to start on a new novel and go for it and finish it really quickly. Oddly, um, The Ripping Tree was the hardest one I've ever written. And in terms of character development, I was diving much deeper than what I ever have before. So you mentioned there about um, observing actions, and, and that's definitely part of the way a character comes across on the page. Mm-hmm. What sort of a role that do, does description and dialogue play in that development I mean that's a real balancing act as well not too much dialogue not too much description is that something that you really think about and layer up over time I do but I also have a very good editor and so my editor um Catherine Milne at HarperCollins she basically said that there were bits of the book that dragged and I should you know think about getting rid of them and so I came back to her and I said yes please get rid of them can you tell me you know, what those are. So she came back to me with huge passages highlighted saying, I don't think we need this. Because for me, I wanted a page turner. I wanted to write a book that people stay up to the early hours of the morning to read. I think one of the hardest things as a writer is to get the reader to turn the page. And my mentor, Glenda Adams, told me that years ago, 30 years ago, when I was doing a master's in creative writing at um, the University of Technology in Sydney. She was my um, uh, lecturer and she basically said, you know, it, it is it is really hard to get people to keep on reading, to stop them putting down the book. So in a way, ever since then, through my 20-odd books, I've had that in my head. I want the reader to keep on turning the page. And it's quite hard because, you know, I think of my bedside table and it's got, you know, maybe 10 or 12 books stacked up in two stacks on my bedside table so many times I've had a book and I've, you know, started reading it and put it down, I'll come back to it later or whatever, and I never do. So I didn't want that for The Ripping Tree. So I'm I'm always very happy to work with an editor who I trust who will basically understand my vision and, and you know, help me to uh, hone the work so that it's not clogged up, it doesn't drag, 
There's not extraneous information that really doesn't need to be there. I mean, years ago, I trained as a radio journalist, and I think that was good training in terms of accepting and respecting the editorial process and not being afraid to cut huge swathes of your work and not being precious about your work either. I'd love to just read this section, which is a description of Mrs. Craw. This is when we're first introduced to her. And I think it's a really great example of how you got that balance right. And I don't know how much of this was edited, Nikki, but um, maybe you could tell us afterwards. So she's tiny and round, as pale as her son and meticulously turned out, a crisp, shiny apple of a front. Her unnaturally red cheeks look vigorously scrubbed and her pale hair is ruthlessly scraped from her face. Nothing about her looks ready for outside. You didn't tell me our guest was awake. Not only awake, but up, up. You were meant to tell me, Mouse, Mouse. The woman's voice is running away from her, slipping into shrillness. Mouse says nothing. You were meant to watch, not do anything. I have to keep this girl alive. That's just that kind of blend of description and dialogue that I think perfectly encapsulates Mrs. Craw, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, and, and, and that scene certainly wasn't edited. Um, I had a lot of fun with her. She's, mm. she's kind of a villain of the story, but I didn't want to make her completely black and white. I wanted to give her a lovely sense of humour at the same time, and I wanted to give her a backstory which makes you understand the way that she is you know she's lost a daughter to the australian bush she's got three surviving sons she's desperate for a daughter when she sees tommy tom you know this this young woman arrive on her doorstep she thinks ah this is a chance to have my my daughter my female companion my little doll who i can dress Unfortunately, she's got, you know, someone who couldn't think of anything worse than that. So they clash <laughs> early on and they keep on clashing and, and, you know, it develops into an enmity between them. But I was fascinated by Mrs. Craw and I didn't want to make her completely unlikable. I wanted her to be something more rounded than that. Yeah, she's got a bit of a wit about her. Her son, she calls Mouse, and then because Tom doesn't want to be identified, Mouse calls her Poss and she's like... Mouse, Poss, well, I've got a right menagerie, you know. She's, <laughs> she, she does have that element of fun. And you do have sympathy for her, even though she is a bit of a villain mm-hmm. in some Monstrous ways. Yeah. in some ways. Yeah. But, but you know, I, I also wanted to uh, write about, in terms of the, you were mentioning earlier, the terrible things that have happened in terms of Australian white settlement and how people acquired the land and how they made money and all those kind of things. I wanted to write how it can infect people and stain people through the generations. So this family that's in the illustrious Willowbray is basically uh, suppressing deep trauma in terms of how they acquired this land. And the ripple mm. effect, it, you know, it travels through all those family members in different ways, including the youngest little mouse who we just heard about in that passage is only seven years old. He's traumatised too. They're all driven by fear, aren't they? And fear brings out terrible qualities in in some people. Yes, yes, because I think they've all got, uh, they're all hiding a terrible secret about, you know, the heart of Willowbray. And it feels intrinsically wrong in some way 
how they got to be where they are. And I feel like you yeah. look at the, the psyche of uh, Australia, I feel like nationally, you know, it's not that we're hiding a terrible secret, but it's the guilt of how this land was acquired you know, the trauma of what went on and what white people did to the Indigenous people in this land, it's like Australia just won't face it full on in a healthy mm. way. I feel like New Zealand is much better at, at facing this full on, facing the truth. Um, so that's all part of, of the Ripping Trees fabric as well. Yeah, because it is horrific and it is a gaping wound and a massive scab in our history and it does need to be picked. And so the new generations coming through can really understand that it's not swept under the carpet. We've got to keep bringing it forward and forward and forward, don't we? And fiction is a great way of doing that. See, exactly, exactly. And there's a central um, trauma within the ripping tree, the heart of the mystery of what actually happened. And some readers have said to me, oh, that didn't happen, surely that's not true. Oh. And it's like, it did. You know, there are oral records of this, of stories passed down through the generations in terms of Indigenous people, specifically what happened and what I wrote about. You know, Google it. it it's, I didn't want to place the ripping tree in a particular location in terms of where it was in Australia. Mm. And that was a, for a deliberate reason because I think if you make it, it could be anywhere that kind of, you can't say, oh, look, that, that, that didn't happen around me or that didn't happen in my area. I've got nothing to do with that. But in a way, we're all implicated in some way because these things were going on in a lot of places and they are mm. undertold stories. In fact, the, the central trauma, one of my teenage boys, they were studying it in Australian history in year nine, this exact thing. And my lad brought home this huge bundle of documents and within them were all these atrocities. And it was like, oh, it, I was going to say, you know, unbelievable, but not because these things happen. But I was grateful that my teenage boys were being exposed to this kind of thing because I certainly wasn't when I was at, in high school. No, we had a very different version of history in our social studies, didn't yes. we? And it was called social studies. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Unbelievable. Nikki, you've always had such a flair for adjectives and similes and metaphors. I remember first reading The Bride Stripped Bear and thinking, I've never read writing like this before. And that passage I just read out about Mrs. Craw, her crisp, shiny apple of a front, it's so visually pleasing and immediately evocative. I, I wanted to read another section, which is a description of the ripping tree, um, if you don't mind, because it just demonstrates the power of your unique ability to, to come up with these different ways of, of describing things. And then we'll have a chat about that process. The ripping tree, I whisper, wrapping my arms around its muscular softness and pressing in my cheek. What eccentricities this upside down land brews. Witch trees that de-skin themselves like reptiles. Swan's wings that are leaves of a devilish black. Spiders as big as handspans. I peel off another slice of bark like a leaf from a medieval chapter book. Oh, it's just heaven. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it's my love letter to the land. 
the medieval chapter book also brings in that gorgeous ancient feeling you know because these trees are so ancient i mean medieval is positively modern in comparison to the ancientness of this land is this something you work over again and again with your descriptions or does it just come naturally (laughs) to you um look some of my books have gone to 60 drafts love song my third novel that that was 60 drafts and and by the wow. end i still look back at that and think oh my god it's like rich chocolate mud cake that you can hardly <laughs> get through so you know in in a way i've i've tried to make my writing simpler from that <laughs> onwards um i i love beauty in writing and i love those writers who kind of sign every sentence they they write with their own particular stamp you know like um michael and darchi i've always loved him salman rushdie uh tony morrison you know they've just got really strong writerly voices of great beauty and that's the kind of writing that i love and um, that's the kind of writing that I've always written. I, I, I write a column for the Weekend Australian magazine. I try and do it in that context as well, although it's much harder with a weekly newspaper column. Um, you still manage to pull it off. <laughs> Thank you. I read it. I read your column first every week. I'd love to hear that secretly, actually. <laughs> but, but yeah, even my columns, I will go to a few, quite a few drafts as well. So it, it doesn't come spontaneously to me. Um, and I will always rework my work. It's why, you know, sometimes I'm asked to go onto a live television show. Like earlier this year, I was asked to go on Q&A. And in the end, I pulled out because I just thought, you know, speaking spontaneously off the cuff, it's not my thing. You know, I'm I'm much more comfortable with the written word and with something that I can work over and rework and rework until I get it right, basically. So that is my process. All my novels, they all go to many, many drafts. The Ripping Tree... Um, it took a long time to settle and the voice took a really long time to settle. That was really hard to get it. I began writing The Ripping Tree in the second person, which is how I'd written The Bride Strip Bear and a few of my other books. I, I love that form and I'm very comfortable writing in that form. I love the, it's like, you did this, you did that, you went here, you stopped, you went, all that kind of thing. It's like you're in someone's head You've got the intimacy of that, but there's also a distance. It's like they're observing themselves. So with the bride strip bear, that worked really well. And I tried it with the ripping tree and it was just, it felt too tricksy for the story, too modern. It just didn't sit right in terms of Poss's head and where she was at. She was too young to be such an observer. Then I tried the third person. She did this. She did that. She went there. And that again, it felt too distancing for her this was a process over a good few years and I eventually settled on the first person with POS you know I always worry with the first that it feels too indulgent it's I this I went I said blah blah and it can become very repetitive like a drumbeat of I through through um whatever you're writing but I basically went through and I tried to take out I wherever I could 
um, just so that you, it's not leaping up into your eyes, the I, 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 which feels very self-indulgent. So, you know, that was a long process for me. So <laughs> that was why yeah. it took 10 years in a way. <laughs> I guess when you think about just going, even going back to Rebecca, that gothic fiction mm. feel, you know, last night I dreamt I went back to Mandalay. So, you know, a lot of those novels that you've talked about are in first person, aren't they? So it does feel right for that particular genre. Exactly, exactly. You know, one of the books that kind of set me on the path as a writer that I've carried with me my whole life is Jane Eyre. You know, when I read that, I think I was 10 or 11 when I first read that, Reader, I Married Him. And you feel, you know, your heart just lunches. You feel like you're there with Jane at that moment. And, you know, that power of connection. As a writer, I've always wanted that. I mean, how can I connect with my reader? And, you know, usually I think, will I connect with honesty? in some way mm. and that's why I wanted my post to feel modern as well so that she can connect with the reader like you were saying you know your, your heart was in your mouth for her it's like that's that's good that's what I want <laughs> yeah yeah I was going to actually ask you about the second person voice because until I'd read The Bride Stripped Bear when was that Nikki? It came out in, actually, I know exactly when because I started writing it just after my firstborn was born and he was born in 2000. So I wrote it in like uh, 2001 because he was born at the end of 2000 and then it was published in 2003, I think. So it's almost 20 years old. Yeah, wow. I just don't think I'd ever read anything written in second person mm -hmm. before. And, of course, I gave it a go and it's notoriously difficult to pull off, isn't it? It is. It, How do you do it? <laughs> well, I, I think you can only do it in a very short, slim novel. Um, and, and for me, I mean, Bright Street Bear is quite thick, but it's written in short chapters. So basically there's a yes. lot of white space if you flip through that book. I had one book that I'd read it in and I absolutely loved. I loved the voice of Jay McInerney in Bright Lights, Big City. And I'd read that in the late 90s. And like you, I'd, I'd never come across Second Person before, but I was struck by it. I thought it was a very, very powerful way of writing that few writers attempt, I think, because it is difficult to pull off. But it's only been with certain books that I've been able to do it. With Bride Strip Bear, it felt perfect. It was just the perfect mm. way to write about something incredibly intimately, but also with kind of a coldness of the observer as well. I, I, I remember thinking it has an every woman flavour to, to using second person yes. as well because you're speaking directly to all the people who are reading it, yes. mostly women, I, I assume, but it has that you know, you, you're the every woman I'm talking mm -hmm. about here. And I loved that as well. That I can remember that I, I, I was specifically aiming for the every woman. And with the Bride Strip Bear, I think I went back to, uh, it was, I think it was a medieval text or a text of a, a woman yes. written in the 1600s. And she was basically directing her text to every woman. And I took little excerpts out of that and I made them the chapter headings. Um, yeah. So I was basically a bit like the bride strip there. I wanted to speak to women through the ages because I do think, you know, our, our concerns are universal concerns. They've always been female concerns about, you know, um, 
power and suppression and control and coercion and voicelessness, all those kind of things, these are not just modern concerns. They might have been called something different 400, 500 years ago, 100 years ago, but we still have the same concerns. So I feel like there's a thread through many of my women. With Shiva, my first novel set um, in Antarctica, it was a young woman amongst a community of Australian men going down to Antarctica, a lot of them tradies, that kind of thing. Once again, it was about a woman trying to find her voice and her authenticity within this environment. So a lot of my novels take up that theme um, in in different ways. Yeah, it was a really brilliant um, and brave book, Bride. It's one of the books I pick up every now and then and just open to any page and I know I will be inspired by the writing of Nikki's. It's really wonderful. It has longevity. Well, well, it's truth. It's honest and I think if you write honestly yes that's that's going to endure and that's why when I read my brilliant career you know that still feels as fresh to me as what it did when I first read it when I was 13 because there's authenticity and there's honesty there. You've said in the past that you tend not to read fiction when you're writing fiction with the exception of poetry why is that and how does poetry inspire your writing? Um, Basically I I find I have so little time anyway within my madly crazy busy life to write my fiction that reading someone else's fiction just fills up too much of my brain. And also for me, I managed to make a full-time living out of my writing. The one thing that could kill it is plagiarism. And so I just worry that if I'm reading other novels, other styles, other people's voices are going to bleed into mine. Um... And I really worry about that. So I just want to keep all that away. Although years ago, I do remember, um, I was, I, I might have been in Bride or one of my later novels. I wrote, wrote about a dam. No, it wouldn't have been in Bride because that didn't have anything to do with Australia. But one of my books I wrote about a dam, the colour of uh, milky tea, you know, an Australian dam on a station. It was the colour of milky tea. And then in one of my downtimes between novels, I read that Murray Bale had used exactly the same description, oh I think, in Eucalyptus or one of his books. And it was like, oh, my God, now everyone will think that I've plagiarised it. <laughs> so, you know, with best intentions, sometimes it's inadvertent. Um, but I do worry about that. In a way, I want to keep my voice and my truth pure. So I don't want to be infected by anyone else, particularly if they're a writer that I love, like a Michael and Dachi. It's just I have to stay way away from them when I'm writing my own books. But with poetry, I find it much easier because you can absorb, you know, a poem very quickly. You can just read a couple of pages. And I use poetry as my tuning fork in a way to beautiful writing. I love the way you can distill an idea or a description into a phrase or a sentence, like you were saying before, the crisp apple of a front. You know, that can create a whole picture of what that person is in a very kind of economical way. And I love I love that power of poetry. And is it also the almost the musicality of poetry, that sort of... Exactly. The rhythms? Exactly, because for me, rhythm is more important than anything as a writer. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm so kind of uh, 
strict about where I put my commas and my semicolons and my full stops and, you know, short, sharp sentences. I can't have too many of them because I don't want a dull, repetitive rhythm. It's the musicality of the words of my prose that I find is so important. So that, for me, is one of the things that I spend a lot of time on. It's the rhythm of my words. Do you read out loud? Does that help? Well, sometimes I do, but I've got a very small house with a multitude of children around me who are always ready, too ready to dive in with the teasing. So if they hear me reading something aloud, oh my God, I, you know, I won't hear the end of it. So um, <laughs> that's my ripping tree, Poss. Yeah. Mom, are you on about that ripping tree again? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So for self preservation reasons, I don't read aloud as much as I would like. <laughs> <laughs> so talking about the sort of short crisp sentences mm -hmm. I noticed in this novel the chapters are short and crisp mm -hmm. aren't they um <laughs> which I love it's actually great you can pick it up and put it down oh, yeah yeah um and I love the the titles that you've used for each were the titles for each chapter springboards like you've got let me just have a look at an example of a title. You know, we've got candle-skinned people, um, what are swan's wing cradles, um, in which the medicine is drunk, which is very uh, room with a view, isn't it, Ian yes. Forster? Were they springboards for those scenes? Uh, not not really. I mean, I did go back to, you know, 19th century novels. I love that idea of in which blah, blah, blah. I do and, too. Yeah, yeah I, want, I wanted to use that. But basically I'd write the chapter and then I would give it the novel title, um, which usually came very quickly because I had the words there. But I did want to make them short chapters and sometimes I felt the chapters were too long and so I just basically split them in half. Right. <laughs> I thought they were too long. Um, but that stems back to Bride Strip Bear Days almost 20 years ago um, when I was writing with a newborn. And so basically I was writing around baby nap times, or not around baby nap times, in baby <laughs> nap time. So, you know, the baby would fall asleep and I'd think, right, I've got an hour, quick, quick, run, run, run. And I'd dash to my laptop. And within that hour, you know, I'd, I'd have a chapter of Bride Strip there written, basically. I learned mm. to write very fast. Very, very short chapters. So I think Bride's Trip Bear, maybe the first chapter is a couple of lines long. <laughs> mm, yeah, some of them are really short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I loved that kind of economy. And ever since then, I've always felt that I'm writing in a way for mothers. <laughs> That's good, though. That sense of urgency is, is a great tool, actually. It's, it's a good habit. It is a good habit because it means that I can work in little bite-sized chunks as well, 20 years track and four kids all the rest and let's face it even when kids get big they still interrupt a lot don't they oh, there's still yeah. you still need to write in chunks in yeah. the car well, between sessions yeah it's, it's worse when they get big because you can't control them you could <laughs> control them when you were they were young but, but you know you can't now and they all seem to want to be fed all the time um yes um and they turn to me of course when you know of there's course. no lunch or there's no food in the fridge or whatever and it's like i'm trying to write but but i've written like that 
ever since I became a mum, basically. But I think that that's a good way to write when you've got lots of other distractions around you. But it's also a good way to read. You know, I really love books that are broken up into little chunks now. I just find it because I, I have to kind of fit it into the busyness of my life, my reading. So like you were saying earlier, if you can put it down, that, that's good and just pick it up again. Okay, so Nikki Gamble writes books for busy women. Yes, exactly, because I know what it's like. <laughs> yeah. So with your scenes, you mentioned before that if a chapter was too long, you would cut it in half. But generally, do you have a, a goal when you sit down to write a scene about what that scene needs to achieve? No, because it changes. I I have an end goal of where I want the book to go. I I love the time before the prose is set into concrete and I love that time when it's all kind of fluid and can go anywhere and you can chuck, you know, 80% of it out perhaps because that's just not working or whatever or you can, can change the direction of something completely. I love surprise, you know, in a book. You know, I love being surprised as a reader. So that that moment before everything's just set and settled and, and hard as concrete, I love the fluidity of that. So, you know, my scenes, uh, whatever I've written, like with that Mrs. Claw scene that you read earlier, it would have been very different in its first iteration. And how do you know when to get out of a scene? Because we talked about you wanting to have pace and have a page turner. Mm-hmm. Is that something you also will consciously look at the end of that chapter? Right, I need to cut it off there because that's going to make somebody want to turn the next page exactly. and read the next chapter. Yeah, Exactly. I'm always thinking of Dickens, you know. He had to get people to buy the next instalment. So he had to finish off his chapter with literally a cliffhanger so that people would want to go back the next week or the next month of the journal that he was writing for and read about the continuing story of Pip or Oliver Twist or whoever it was. And so that was a really good lesson for me in terms of page turning and getting a reader to stick with you. You want to literally end your chapter in a way that makes them think, oh, what happened next? So I always have that in mind as I'm working on a scene and as I'm coming towards the end of a chapter. Um, You know, it might be very subtle, but it's that little niggle in a reader's head of I need to know what happens next. Yeah. I remember listening to an interview with Christian White, who wrote The Nowhere Child mm. and The Wife and the Widow, in a previous life was a screenwriter. Mm. He said his goal with novel writing is to get people back from the commercial break. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, exactly. And I think that's a mod- modern day Dickens, right? Exactly, exactly. I, I think now in terms of Netflix and all the rest of it, I've got so yeah. many, you know, in terms of Mickey keep watching so many things that I've started watching and just given up on so screenwriting is very similar to novel writing in that respect or certain types of novel writing. Nikki, prologues in this novel you call it a a foreword but people are very divided on prologues some editors say they love them and others say no get rid of them is that something that you and your editor discussed or was it was it something you just wanted to put in because it's part of the structure of the story isn't it the foreword and the afterword yes yes I didn't even think about discussing it with anyone and I, I just put it in I didn't think that there's a thing about not having them in for me it's central to the story uh, and what I was thinking of when I wrote my prologue and my afterword 
was Henry James, The Turn of the Screw. He basically has a prologue. He might have called it a foreword in his novel. Um, and it just seemed to work. For him, it was a group of people, travellers, who were gathered around a fire. And one of them says, I have a ghost story to tell you. And so basically the body of the novel is that ghost story, but it's separate to the forward and the afterward. And that's exactly what it is like in The Ripping Tree. It's basically yes. um, a hidden manuscript that a grandmother has, a story that she's never told her family. And over a, in a stormy night, she basically takes it out in front of the fire and she starts to read the diary, uh, the, the journal, the diary entries of this young woman, Thomasina. And basically uh, you come back at the end, you come back to this grandmother figure and she carries on the story and ties up the story in a way. So I, I hope that there haven't been readers of The Ripping Tree who thought, oh, that's a forward, I'm not going to read that. That would be a real shame. And also with the afterward, I really hope they read that because... It's so satisfying. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Because otherwise it mightn't be as satisfying. So I, I don't know. I don't know if that, if it's read or not. I hope it is. Oh, it better be. Well, you, you heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> Prologues and forewords are okay with Nikki Gemmell, so they should be all right for all of us. I'm partial to them. So Good. I use them all the time. <laughs> Um, but the epilogue or the afterword, when I got to that, I thought, oh, yes, now I get to find out hopefully who the grandmother mm. is that was in the foreword. So it's kind of a lovely um, tying up of, of that loose yes. end as well and that solving of that mystery, which is very satisfying. <laughs> now, Nikki, this novel is something of a departure for you, as you mentioned earlier, being an historical work of fiction. What were the challenges of this novel and what did you learn about writing this novel? that's new, something new after 25 years of writing novels? Well, I guess for me, I always like to write something new. I, I, you know, I've written a few trilogies throughout my writing career. My first Shiver Cleave Love Song, that was a landscape trilogy. Then I had my sexy books, The Bride, um, The Bride Ones. That was a trilogy too. Um, I, like, I like to challenge myself. I don't like to repeat myself. Um, for me, when I came back to live in Australia after 15 years away from it, this was a decade ago, um, I, I just felt, you know, there's something undertold about so many of the stories of this land. I want to give historical fiction a go. But I'd never done it before. You know, my publishers, they tried to sign me up for a two-book deal with The Ripping Tree. And basically I said at the time, look, I don't even know if I can do this. I don't even know if this novel is going to work, if it will be a success. I have no idea. So please don't sign me up for two because I might do one and then find that's it. I, I, I just don't know how to do them and I can't do another one. So I only did the one and perhaps I didn't anticipate how much research would be involved in historical fiction, but I must admit I had a ball. I love the fact that I completely immersed myself in these things. I, I travelled down to northeastern Tasmania. I went to Port Macquarie to convict areas, the Hawkesbury River regions and Auburns. Um, I kind of wanted to live and breathe the, the convict experience, the early settler experience. You know, I, I have a few scenes set around a dinner table. And so once again, I wanted to find out what early settlers ate you know, what their menus were. That was so much fun too, diving into that world. 
So in all different ways, I was researching over 10 years. I'd never had to do that before with my fiction, but I loved it. You know, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do another historical fiction book. <laughs> well, that does beg the question. <laughs> A sequel? Yes. <laughs> because I, I don't know. I read that afterward, the epilogue, and thought, oh, I need to know more. <laughs> I want to know more. <laughs> Look, I, I would love to. And, and we're just got undergoing negotiations with my agent and my publisher at the moment about what I do next because I had mm. started on something completely different. And I often find with my writing it's it's a complete reaction to my previous work what I do and and you know I've, I've started writing a kind of a thriller about a, a contemporary teenage daughter and her mother um and you know with all that world of teenagers and you know everything yeah. um which I feel like I'm living and breathing at the moment <laughs> I started on that but yes in terms of the ripping tree I also wanted to write a beautiful love story in there and really with The Ripping Tree, it's only the beginnings of that love story. There's a, yes, there's a, lovely, there's a lovely male <laughs> character in there. I don't want to give too much away who's, who's very, I, I just love him. He's, he's clumsy and he's awkward and he's like this big bear figure who's very shy and he 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 doesn't have the gift of the gab and he's very self-conscious but he's lovely he's a deeply thinking man and a gentle man and i wanted to continue that love story and i kind of hint in the afterward that um they may have got together but i want to i want to really explore that in another book you know i think of something like dr Zhivago and the great great love story at the heart of that that i first absorbed in my teens i want to write you know a wonderful love story like that or a jane eyre you know that those kind of romances that you completely swept away with so i i could envisage that for a sequel for this book but i just have to basically work out where i am going <laughs> next i have two very com different competing things in my head Yes, it sounds like it. But I know the man you're talking about and he was a lovely antidote mm. to some of the more awful men <laughs> depicted in the novel. Yes. <laughs> so, Nikki, we have a last question, yep. which was sent in by an Instagram follower called Geraldine Norfelt. Thank you for your question, Geraldine. She has three children and her question <laughs> is, how did you juggle your writing around four children, mm -hmm. especially when they were young? Or preschool aged between what hours would you write your novel we did talk about that a little bit earlier but when they were school aged um, perhaps it might be a bit different yes look thank you Geraldine that is a great question and you know it's been not the bane of my working life but just the big question of my working life is how on earth I do it around four kids and you know the ripping tree is nine ten years old my my youngest Jago is about to turn ten next next month so he was basically, as I was starting to think about the ripping tree, I I got pregnant. I had no idea. I thought I was going through the menopause. You know, my period stopped. It was like, yes, I'm out the other side. I'm free. I'm free. And then, oh, Nikki. Oh, my goodness. Oh. oh, my goodness. I was 44. And, you know, I, I thought I'd be able to have this clear stretch of writing time ahead of me. And then this beautiful little boy arrived. Mm. But perhaps that's why The Ripping Tree has taken me almost a decade to write. Um, yeah. For me, 
my kids for ages had no idea I was a writer. They just thought I was a full-time mum because basically the only routine that works for me now is to get them off to school, tear home, you know, at 9 o'clock, 9.30, I am at my desk and I am working solidly until 3 o'clock when it's around, you know, school ending time, school pick-up time. And I'm so disciplined with those precious six hours or so that I have to work in completely free of anyone. And, you know, the, the dishes might be in the sink and there are like three loads of washing that have to be put on or whatever. I won't do that in my writing time because that writing time is too precious. I will do the dishes in the sink and the washing when the kids are home. I will do all the chores, you know, around them basically because I just need that little cone of silence to do anything basically. But I I also have a very supportive partner. He's been the biggest gift in my life. Um, And he will sometimes say to me, "Just, just go, just go and write, just get lost. And it's usually when I'm becoming shouty mum and he can tell it within me. Yes, I was going to say it's in everybody's interest if mum goes and writes. Exactly, exactly. Because if I can't (laughs) write, I get very agitated and I feel terrible. I take it out on the kids. You know, they get the brunt of it. I get very short with them and cranky. I turn into that woman I never wanted to be and that woman, that mother that I don't like at all. And my husband, he can, he can recognise that in me. And so over the years, over the 20 years of parenthood with him, he's occasionally just said, can you just get out of here? Just go away for a weekend. Just go away for a week. And, and you know, we will make it work somehow. And I've gone. I've You know, I've, I've rented out a little cottage somewhere in the middle of nowhere, often without any internet, so there's no distraction. When I come back, you know, the kids have had Maccas. Seven, seven nights Doesn't a week. Matter. Doesn't matter. You know, they've, they've worn their pyjama bottoms to school. They've, they're still alive. They're still alive. They haven't done any homework or they haven't gone to their soccer matches or whatever it is. They are so happy. So it's reached the stage where they're all begging me to go and write because they love it when I'm away writing and I come back a better mother. So basically that's how I do it. I used to write, you know, till midnight, fueled by champagne and chocolate in my pre-motherhood days. Now I'm in bed at 9pm. You know, I'm so <laughs> tired. Um, so I, I can't work at night anymore. And I guess, you know, writing around motherhood is knowing your boundaries too, knowing you can't push yourself anymore. More. So you've just got to find that time when you can. Yeah, and you're pumping out a column every week yeah. as well, which is which is hard. Pressure. It is. It is. It's it's hard work, but it's basically my regular income. If I didn't have the mm. column, I, I'd probably have to teach or do something because writing is such a precarious world. It doesn't bring in anything like a regular income. So I have to do my column in a way to buy me my writing time to do what I really want to do, which is write novels. But um, it's, it's, it's getting harder and harder because in the early days of writing my column 10 years ago, I had maybe a year's worth of columns. It was very easy to dash them off. And now as the years go on, it's like, oh, gosh, I can't write about screens and children again because I wrote about that three years ago. Um, you know, I, it, it's, um, I have to be careful about not repeating myself and so it's getting harder and harder to find topics. But I don't want to give that up because it is an income for me. 
gosh, I don't know where you find your inspiration. Do you just look around the house and think, oh, God, um, there's a tree outside, yeah. trees. What do I know about yeah, trees? Exactly. Um, hang on a sec. <laughs> and that's what I do. And I used to write about the teenage world because, you know, my teenagers are such a rich source of, oh, yeah. oh they're so funny. Um, but I had to stop that because my eldest stormed up to me one day and said, I'm not going to tell you anything anymore because you – write about me all the time you put me in your column and you call me the teenager it was like okay so that stops that one so no I'm very careful about writing about my kids now one of your children provided the title for this novel they did they did it was Thea my daughter um she had just come to Australia you know she was like three or four and she didn't really know Australia she was a little Brit she was born in London and so she came here and she looked all around at these amazing trees that she'd never seen before. And she started saying to me, look, mummy, look at the whipping tree. Isn't the whipping tree incredible? And she was talking about a paper bark, you know, with the big long tongues of bark, mm. like the description that you read. And mm. it, when she said the whipping tree, it was like, oh, that is a great title for a novel. You know, really never tell a, a magpie novelist, you know, a title that you don't want to give away. And basically... I said to her, oh, can I have that? Can I use that? <laughs> she said, yeah, if you pay me. <laughs> so she held me to it. So, you know, nine years later, I had to pay up. To, to, oh, you had to pay up? <laughs> I had to pay up. To you. It became a running joke in the family. And, you know, and I kept on saying, oh, look, the publishers might change the title because sometimes they do. So... As soon as I got the um, email with the cover, the beautiful cover, I, I showed the family and she went, ah, it's called The Ripping Tree. That's my title. So, <laughs> pay up. Pay up. <laughs> yeah. If she's anything like my daughter, she probably still would have negotiated a payment even if the title wasn't used, yeah. right? Yes, she would have. You've been hanging on to that title. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> God love him. Yeah. Nikki, it's been absolutely delightful chatting with you. Thank you so much for your time today, taking time out of your busy schedule. I really appreciate it. Oh, Michelle, thank you. It was such a joy. I better go and pick that little scallywag up now. Back to the mothering. Yeah, back. Yeah, it's never too far away. But look, it was such a joy and I love the questions. I really love meeting you. I really hope our paths cross in the future. I'm sure okay. they will. Yeah. I really hope they do. And thank you for inspiring so many writers that I know. Hold your oh, novels in high. High esteem and and have found them inspiring oh. over the years. You're a, a, such an inspiration as a working novelist of so many years standing. Oh, yeah, I think that's something to to really aspire to. So thank you for being that person. Thank you so much, darling Michelle, and have a lovely day. You too. Bye. <laughs> Bye. There you go, Nikki Gemmel. I love talking to Nikki. I could have easily gone on for another half an hour or more. You can find out more about Nikki at her website, NikkiGemmel.com, and she's also on Twitter, Facebook, and now Instagram, where she posts the most divine little word vignettes about her life, so make sure you go and follow her there. Now to our July book, which is, drumroll, The Dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison by Meredith Jaffe. Now, full disclosure, Meredith is a close friend of mine, and I was lucky enough to read an early draft of this novel, and I've had a bit of an insider's view of its path to publication, so I'm really looking forward to drilling into that drafting and redrafting process with Meredith. She's also great on the craft of writing, so I think you'll find it a really valuable conversation. So tune in for that one on the 1st of August. In the meantime, you can win a copy of Meredith's novel. Just head over to Instagram 
Writers Book Club Pod or Facebook Writers Book Club Podcast and enter there. Now, as always, you have just over three weeks to read The Dressmakers of Yarrandara Prison and think of all the questions you'd like to ask Meredith. You can find links to buy both paperback and ebook versions on the website at writersbookpodcast.com and you can also leave your questions via the form on the website or pop them on Instagram or Facebook under any of the posts or even just DM me anytime up until the 24th of July. Thank you so much for joining me today. You'll find all the show notes at writersbookclubpodcast.com and if you're enjoying the podcast, feel free to leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Well, that's it from me. Have a great month, everyone. This podcast was recorded on the beautiful but unceded lands of the Gurungai people of the Eora Nation, and I pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Happy writing, and I'll see you next month. <music> <laughs>